turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read a good portion of 8 and 9. And I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But I just want to say if you're tired and you need to sit down, don't feel ashamed. <laughs> but please stand with me if you're able. First, Second Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in, all, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Chapter 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, 
you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Our great God, we come to you and to your word And we want to see Christ. We want to see the glory of the cross. And we want to see how the wonders of your salvation relate to the life that we live week by week. So that our worship would not be on Sundays only, but it would be day to day and hour by hour. That our hearts would be satisfied in you. And Lord, I pray that as we consider the topic of giving and money, that our hearts would stir in us to let go of this world and look to eternity. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would be a better investor in heaven and that we would care less and less for the treasures of this world which are passing away. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last week we took a look at why we gather as a church week by week, Sunday by Sunday, why it's so important that we come together. We saw that there are no replacements for our gatherings. There are many supplements, but nothing that can take the place of Sunday morning church, or Sunday night, or Saturday night, but our weekly gatherings together, trying to replace church by listening to sermons online or listening to worship CDs would be a little bit like trying to live off of multivitamins. Not a good idea. They're helpful, but they can't sustain you. We also saw that our weekly gatherings are the place where we can come together to fulfill God's purpose for us as a body, as we serve one another and maintain our unity. And I gave you fair warning last week that this week we would be looking at the issue of giving money and what we do with it. I think all of us have a default in our thinking about giving. And we get at least part of the picture right. Even those that are outside the church recognize at least two principles of giving. 
There, there is in our society, isn't there, a recognition of charity, that charity is a good thing, that donations are valuable. Even our government gives us tax discounts, tax breaks for what we give. We'll leave that there. But they do. They recognize there's something good. If you do this, we will reward you. Now, what we understand, I think, all of us inherently is, first, that there is some level of obligation or duty when it comes to giving. There's a certain rightness about helping those in need. It's a duty. And usually, that's how the world approaches it. That's why on all the, the uh, what do they call them? They used to be telethons. I don't think that textathons, is that what they call them now? Where they get online and they, they want you to give to somebody in need, a cause of some kind. What do they do? They show you a video that makes you feel bad for the people they want you to support. What is that stirring up in us? It's stirring up in us a sense of obligation, of duty. I have to do this. This poor person, I need to help them. And there's something right about that that we ought to feel a level of burden or obligation or duty. Second thing we, I think, all understand is that there's a pragmatic element to giving, and that is ministries, organizations can't function apart from funding. And that's why we put up with, on the radio, the, uh, what are they called, fundraising campaigns. I remember I used to listen to the local classical radio station and NPR news would come on and it seemed like every other week they were running a fundraising campaign. We don't do any advertising, so thanks for bearing with us while we try to raise this money. And now, don't listen to much radio anymore, I can get it all on my phone, but when I go onto Wikipedia, you notice that? Have you ever gone on to Wikipedia? Now they have banners at the top. We're raising funds. If everyone just gives $3, we'll be able to run. We recognize there's a pragmatic element to giving. And that's true here at the church. There is a sense in which if we all stopped giving, the church would stop running. We have obligations. We have financial bills. We have to pay for the heating. We have to pay to fix things. We have to pay for the staff. There's a pragmatic element. But you've heard it said that a partial truth presented as a full truth is a complete lie. A full truth presented as a, a partial truth presented as a full truth is a complete lie. And if that is our total picture of giving, then we are at risk of believing a lie. And so this morning I want to look at five principles for giving that I think will prepare us to abound in the work of generosity. Five principles for giving that will prepare us to abound in the work of generosity. And as we look at these, add them on to those two that we all already have. Add them on. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and I mentioned this verse last week. I want to read it again now. What is giving? 
Why do we do it? Acts chapter 17, verse 24. This is Paul speaking at the Areopagus in Athens. He says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. God does not live in this church any more than he lives in the house down the road. He doesn't. He does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So the first principle that we see about giving is that giving does not meet God's need. Giving doesn't meet God's need. When we think of public radio, we understand they have a need. I might turn on the radio one day and it's gone because there wasn't enough giving. That could happen. But never do we give because God needs it. And if we think in those terms, everything is backwards. In fact, such thinking is blasphemous. If we think we are giving because God has a need, then we make ourselves out to be God. We're meeting His deficiency. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, here's why. He explains it in verse 25. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he gives us everything we have. God gives us everything we have. What do you have? God gave it to you. Your house. God gave it to you. Your job, God gave it to you. Your bank account, God gave it to you. He has given you everything. And if he's given you everything, then is there any sense in which we can say he needs it back? He created it. He made it all to begin with. And if he's the one who made it, then there cannot be any sense in which he's saying, please give to me, I need it, please No way. He has given us everything that we have, so it's not possible for him to need anything that we have. He gave it to us. He made it. And God does not need anything. God does not need anything. God is self-sufficient. He depends on nothing outside of himself. He depends nothing He depends on nothing outside of himself for his existence or for his well-being or for his joy. In no way does God depend upon us. So when we give, we are not meeting God's need. Never think when you are going to give in an offering, God just can't do it without me. Not true. He can. He can. We never give to meet his need. That's principle number one. 
If you give thinking that you are meeting God's need, something is dreadfully wrong. The second principle that we see is that giving is in proportion to God's gift. Giving is in proportion to God's gift. This flows right out of the first point. Giving doesn't meet God's need. How do we know that? God is the one who gave us everything. Now, has he given us all the same thing? Same amount? No. To some, he gives little. To some, he gives much. And our giving is in proportion to God's gift. Look at uh, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 12. 2 Corinthians 8, 12, and Paul says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So when God looks at your giving, he does not expect you to give according to what he gave somebody else. He expects you to give according to what he gave you. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not what he does not have. And so if you do not have great wealth, God does not expect great wealth from you. It's acceptable according to what you have, not what you don't. Verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or equality, balance. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, down in verse 15, Paul quotes from the book of Exodus. You remember the account when they're all in the wilderness, they've just left Egypt, and they get out into Egypt, and what do they realize? We didn't pack any food. I mean, how are we going to feed two, three million people? There's 600,000 men, plus all the women and all the children, and all the older men who were not able to go to war. So m several million people, most likely, are out in the wilderness. And God, well, no, and the Israelites say, uh, how are we going to eat? <laughs> I mean, have you, have you thought about that? We have great Awana, uh, Tuesday, uh, no cooking for you, second week, no cooking for you. And it's an ordeal. I mean, it's not a big ordeal, but it's an ordeal. You've got to prepare food for, I don't know, 50, 100 people at least. That's a big deal. Now imagine doing that for a million people. That would take all day, every day, to get your food ready, and you'd run out of time. How are you going to do it? How's Moses going to feed and provide for all of these people? And the answer was, God literally sent it from heaven. So that when they woke up in the morning, there was, on the ground, manna. And they all went out and they picked up the bread, which is not bread as in a loaf, but more like a, a crust over the ground. And they broke off the crust and they ate it and they said, this tastes good. This is sweet. It tastes like coriander seed. And they loved it at first. You know the rest of the story. But 
Here's what, here's what Paul draws on. This is where the quote comes from. They all went out of their tents, and it's day one, manna's here. So what are they all worried about? They're, they're worried not just about today's food, but tomorrow's food. Anyone ever worry about tomorrow's food? Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't we, all of our worrying is about tomorrow, isn't it? Isn't it? So what happens to the Israelites is they go out to gather food and some of them think, oh, you know what? I'll get tomorrow's food too. And so they gathered twice as much. And they thought, this way I don't really have to depend on God. If manna doesn't come tomorrow morning, I'm fine. Well, they went out and they gathered much, and some of them gathered little. And when they got back to their tents, guess what they found? They only had enough for that day. All of them. Those who gathered much didn't have any left over. And if they did, actually, it rotted. But those who gathered just a little bit, they had enough to make it through the day. This isn't coincidence. This is God saying, you will depend on me day by day by day. I will not give you grace tomorrow until tomorrow. Now, that's a huge burden lifted off of our shoulders, isn't it? God will give you what you need for today. He will not give you what you need tomorrow until tomorrow. But when that comes to giving, how does it relate? Paul says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. And he draws this principle out of it. Some of us in this body have a great need. And not just this body, but in the body of Christ globally. Some of us have great needs. And some of us have no needs. In fact, we have more than we need. We have an abundance. Why did God give little to some and much to others? So that those who have much could supply the needs of those who have little. If you've been sitting on a lot of money in your bank account wondering why God would do that, it's not an accident. He did it that you might supply the needs of others. So that if we have an abundance and we are supporting a missionary that we know is doing the work of the gospel and they have a lack, what should our instinct be? Let's use our abundance for their need. Now, what's your temptation going to come to mind as soon as we say that? Well, if I give that away now, then I'm not going to have anything left. And then there might come a day where I lack. Yeah. And guess what? When that day comes, God will have given an abundance to someone else so that they can meet your need. And so by meeting one another's needs, we are drawing together as a body. Our unity increases, and Paul's getting all of this from Exodus. But more than that, when I say that God, our giving is in proportion to God's gift, we also see that we should never compare our giving to others. We should never compare ourselves to others. We're not looking around the room during offering time wondering, you know, how, how much is a good amount? Not looking at other people, we're not asking that. God has given us everything that we have, all that we need. So your gift should be in proportion to what God has given you. And if God's only given you a small amount, then God only expects a relatively small amount. And if God has given you great abundance and you give a little amount, 
He is not pleased. He didn't give you a little bit. He gave you a ton, so give a ton. <laughs> Don't get caught comparing yourselves to others. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Have you asked yourselves what you need to survive? What promise can you depend on from God? In, in general, this is the promise you have from God. Food and clothing. Don't we feel entitled to far more than that? I know we do. If you've ever complained about dinner, then you believe you're entitled to more than food. You're entitled to good food. He doesn't say how much food. He does not say anything about the quality of the food, nor the quality of the clothing, nor whether or not they are in fashion. He just says food and clothing. That's what we need. Now think about that. If our giving is to be in proportion to God's gift to us, we generally think, well, I make, I'll just make the numbers up. I make 30000 Somebody else makes 40000 So they should give about a third more than I do. Or they may look down at you and say, well, you know, 30000 this is how much it should be. But God says you need food and clothing to survive. Now, I, I, I went online, I looked up the federal definition of poverty. You know, they have the poverty line. Family of five, poverty levels $28,000 a year. So in theory, what the government's saying is if you are able to make $28,000 a year and you and your wife have three kids, you have enough for food and clothing. You can survive off of that. They don't say anything about quality of life, just you can survive. Well, if I have to spend $28,000 just to survive, and I make thirty, how much do I have left over? Two. How much can I afford to give? Well, up to two, right? That's how much I have free. I can survive with all but two. What about then the guy that makes $40,000? He can survive on all but twelve. Now, when you look at 30 and 40, you say, that's not too far off, you know, a little bit more. But now if you look at their expendable income, the guy with 40,000 has six times the amount that the guy with 30,000 has. And the reason that I mention that is for us to think not in terms of, have I given enough? Is God going to be mad at me? but rather for us to begin to think how much abundance has God given me and how much can I give away. I want to give away. And I'll explain why in a minute. But consider the widow. You remember the story of the widow? It's not a, it was history. Christ looked over in the temple and saw the rich people pouring in their money. And then this widow came up with two small coins that are worth a penny. And she puts it in and he says, she has given more than all the others because they all gave out of their abundance. They could afford to give, but she gave everything she had left to live on 
She even gave away her food money. And Christ says she gave far more. So our giving is in proportion to God's gift. Did God look down at her penny and say, I don't, what am I going to do with a penny? Come on. No. Because what she had, she gave all of. And God praised her for that. Also, our abundance is for the needs of others. The abundance that we have is not for us to freely spend. That's not why God gave it to us. Now, I'm not saying you cannot spend money on yourself or that you cannot buy that, you know, the new shirt you were looking at or get an upgrade to your car so you actually know you're going to make it to work. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what's the purpose behind it? Why the abundance? The abundance is to meet the needs of others. God deliberately distributes the wealth in different amounts. Because if we all had the same amount, then anyone who had a need you could look at and say, you had just as much as I did. Deal with it. But God gives it disproportionately, some little, some much, so that we have a need for one another, so that we depend on one another. And it may be money for some of you that you have much of, and some of the, the, the others may have an abundance of mercy. And you may not have a lot of money, but you have more mercy than anyone else. Guess what God wants you to give? That. Whether it's money or mercy or love, teaching, whatever it is, give it. It's for others, not for yourself. The third principle we see is that giving from poverty is greater than giving from abundance. Flip back to chapter 8 in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. That's what I was just talking about. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. The third principle we see is that even though God wants us to give in proportion to what we have, and he does not compare you to anyone else, he compares you to what he's given you, you can actually give out of poverty. You see what he's saying? You didn't have $28,000. You had twenty-six. You were below the poverty line. You had a lack. You didn't even have enough. And you said, you know what? I think we can make this work. Let's, let's do this for the month of August, rice and beans and whatever vegetables we can pull out of our garden. And all the other money we'd normally spend on food, we're going to send over to Jerusalem, where the, where the saints there are poor and dying from starvation. Let's do it. And now out of their poverty they give, and Paul says, this is amazing. This is remarkable. Now, if you look at verse 3, there's nothing wrong with giving according to your, uh, your gift or in proportion to your means. Nothing wrong with that. Giving according to your means is good. That's good. But giving beyond your means is better. 
Giving according to your means is good. Giving beyond your means is better. If we've been given a little, God expects a little. But don't let your own comfort be the limit. See if you can't give out of your poverty. Beyond your means. Beyond your means. Normally we think, once I get that bonus, that's when I'll give the gift. You know, I know I haven't been given that much, but if I get that bonus, God, I promise I'll give this to you. And that's not bad. Don't, don't misunderstand. But what Paul is saying is, you don't need to wait for that bonus to give out of your poverty. See what you can do now. See what you can do now. Give out of your poverty. Giving beyond your means is better. Now, let's turn the corner to principle number four, and this is where it gets a little bit more practical. I hope at this point that you're, you're getting a clearer picture. It's not just about obligation. It's not just about pragmatics of, well, the church needs money to run, and if you don't give it, it's going to shut down. No, God's given you a gift. You're not meeting God's need. He's given you a gift, and he expects a return from that gift. We never compare ourselves with one another, but we look at what God has given us. We give out of that, and we give in proportion to that. But now look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. We understand my giving is in proportion to what God's given me. I can give out of my poverty, but now he takes us somewhere, I think, foreign. Even if we recognize all of that, if we're giving out of duty, if we're giving out of mere obligation, under compulsion, now it's no longer worship. Giving without joy is not worship. Giving without joy is not worship. Look at verse 5. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. Giving Gifts given with reluctance are exactions. If you're not sure, if you're hesitating, I don't really want to do this, but I feel like I got to fight that battle or it won't be worship. If it's mere compulsion that you have to do it, it's not worship. And gifts given with joy are acts of worship. Whether it's here at the church or to those that are in need or missionaries that you support on your own, those gifts, if done with joy, become worship. Now, let me stop here and ask, why does God think it's better to give out of my poverty? Why does he think it's better to give in accordance with my means? It would make sense if you were giving to me, because I'd say $100 is better than 10, right? 
you're giving to me, I'd say, hey, $100 is better. If you've got 100, 100 sounds great. I'll take it. But none of that matters to God. So why does he say one is better than the other? What goes on in your hearts when you consider giving to the Lord? Just imagine that right now you're, you're contemplating giving $1,000 to the church or 10000 or whatever would really press you. What happens in your heart? Don't you start to worry about your needs and your wants? Don't you ask questions like this, well, how would I pay this bill? Or that would mean I don't get to go on this vacation. That would mean I wouldn't have money for this. We start to get scared, don't we? We start to see that we're depending on money and not God. It matters to God that we give in a proportion to what He's given us. It matters to God that we give beyond our means because when we do that, it proves that our hearts are trusting in Him. When I'm tempted not to give, when I am tempted to hold back, it is for my own security. It is for my own happiness, I think, that I do it. But if I say instead, God, this is more than I think I can live off of. I, I, can't, I can't give more than this. I'm giving more than I think I can. Then who am I trusting? I'm saying, God, you're the one who gave it to me to begin with. Now I give to you because I know you can give it to me again. Our work of generosity, our act of giving becomes an act of worship. Now let's finish with five and wrap it up. Giving, and this one might surprise you, giving without a reward is idolatry. Giving without a reward is idolatry. You get that backwards? No. Giving without a reward is idolatry. Turn over to Matthew 6 and, and we'll stay there the rest of our time. God wants us to give joyfully. He also wants us to give seeking a reward. Seeking a reward. He wants us to. Watch. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Bad thing. You don't want to miss out on God's reward. So don't give in order to be seen by others. Worst thing you can do, show off what you've given. Now you've got your reward. You showed off. Everyone saw it. And period. Done. That's your reward. But instead, verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound the trumpet before you. I'm sorry. Sound no trumpet before you. As the hip... Yeah. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that's a, a nice way of saying keep it secret. So much so that your hands don't even know what the others are doing. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the motive behind giving in secret? Reward. That's, that's pretty radical, isn't it? God is saying, give in secret so that you can actually have a reward from my Father. You can have a reward here on earth, or you can have a reward in heaven from my Father. I know this one's better. Therefore, give in secret. Why? Why do I want to give in secret? Because it's the right thing to do. No. So that you can have that reward. Because if you do not give in secret, you will get this little dinky reward that will perish and rot and be stolen. But if you seek a reward that is in heaven, when you get it, it will never fade. Look over at verse 19, chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Christ is saying, his command in verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do you want treasures in heaven? That is the question. Do you? If you do, then you give away trusting that in heaven you are making an investment. When you give to the needy, who will reward you? Can the needy reward you? Only God can reward you. And so by giving our money in proportion to what God has given us and beyond our means, recognizing we're not meeting God's need, then we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So where are we investing our money? If our money is here, secure, got it all budgeted, nice and neat, we have our reward. But if we give to the ministry, if we give to those in need, they cannot repay us, but who sees what we do in secret? God does, and he will reward us. So when we give, we do not do it out of mere obligation. Rather, we do it in order to be rewarded. We sow in order to reap. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He wants us to reap bountifully. And the only way we can do that is if we sow bountifully. And we give in order to receive. We give to the Lord in order to receive from the Lord. So I say, this money that I'm now giving away, even though I want it, I want to use it on this and this, and I want to keep it here for my security. This money that I'm giving away, I'm doing so because God has something better that he will reward me with. And that is himself. That is heaven. 
And that's what we are investing in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are the giver of all things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would no longer cling to the things of this world, but that rather our minds would be so fixed upon heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God that we would invest in heaven and not in earth. May our treasures be stored up in heaven. May we do what only you see so that we might be rewarded with an eternal reward and not with a reward that will perish and fade away. May Christ be that reward in our hearts. I pray, amen. As we...